Hey folks, and welcome to episode 171 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing in our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, Jordan is specifically going to deal with the covenant birthright of Esau and Jacob. This really is a fascinating episode as Jordan deals with the misconception that Jacob did something terrible to Esau by taking the birthright. He's going to discuss many typological pictures that are in this passage, as well as explain the biblical understanding of maturity. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. At last, we come to the section called the Covenant Birthright, I've called it that, on page 11 of your notes. That actually should say Covenant Birthright, chapter 25, 29 to 34. I guess the 7 on the typewriter is so close to the 9 that I mistyped it. We've already met our characters. We've had a hint in the narrative that Esau is an irresponsible person. He's what nowadays is called a hunter-gatherer. And Jacob is a responsible person. He manages the farm, stays at home. We've seen that Isaac has fallen into sin, the sin of Adam, basically, of making his food his God. Adam saw food he wasn't supposed to have and said, I want that food. God made people hungry so that we want food. And then he tells us, Take food A and not food B. That becomes the test. If you don't eat for a while, you'll get hungry. Then you'll face that choice. That's how God set things up. And Isaac makes the wrong choice. And Rebecca makes the right choice. Rebecca has heard the word of God. She listens to the word of God. She's already been presented to us as sort of a new Abraham. And she makes the right choice. And now we come to the story where these things are settled early on. Now, just chronology-wise, what we're going to find is that when Jacob and Esau are 77 years old, that's when Isaac thinks he's about to die and determines to bless Esau and winds up blessing Jacob, and Jacob is sent into a strange land to get a wife. He's 77. Now, considering these people lived about 150 years, I think that's probably the equivalent of being about 35 to us. It's not quite as old. He's got a long way to go. He's going to have kids. He's going to do a bunch of other things in his life. But it's 77. 77 years into the future after they're born. In between that time, Isaac, as we'll see today briefly, leaves the promised land and goes to dwell with the Philistine Egyptians in Gerar. And while he's there, a whole bunch of things happen. And he settles at Beersheba. And while he's there, at the age of 40, Esau gets married for the first time. And so the story we're about to read, assuming this is all set out in chronological order, which I don't have any reason to doubt, these guys were probably about 20 years old when this happens, maybe a little bit older. It happens fairly early in their lives. I think that's probably significant. Chronologically, this is a long way off from the time when Isaac decides he's not going to honor the arrangement we're about to read. He's going to bless Esau when he's supposed to bless Jacob. 
So now we have the story, and we want to read this story dramatically and allow ourselves to follow the flow of what's said. I'm going to read it through once, and then we'll read it again. Verses 29 to 34, and this is on page 117 of the Fox translation. Once Yaakov was boiling boiled stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Yaakov, Please give me a gulp of the red stuff, that red stuff, for I am so weary. Therefore they called his name Edom, red. And Yaakov said, Sell me your firstborn right today. And Esau said, Behold, I am on my way to dying, so what good to me is a firstborn right? And Yaakov said, Swear to me today. And he swore to him and sold his firstborn right to Yaakov. Yaakov gave Esau bread and boiled lentils. He ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus did Esau despise the firstborn right. I think we've said enough in the past where I don't need to review the problem with misreading this text. Let's look at how it actually flows for us. Jacob is boiling something. Boiled stew, it says. That can be anything. We know it's bubbling away in a pot. Esau comes in. He's just tired. He sees stuff in the pot, and it looks red. Now, for some reason, he says, and the Bible is careful to tell us, in fact, doubling it up, that it's red stuff. And for that reason, they call his name Edom, Red One. Now, actually, in verse 25, it said that when Esau was born, he came out Edom, ruddy, like Seir, a hairy mantle all over. So they called his name Esav, hairy dude. We've already seen that he is red in complexion. So we don't need this. But for some reason, we're given an additional thing here about his name being called Red because of this red food he thought he was going to get. Jacob says, if you want this, sell me your firstborn right. All God says is that he's tired, but Esau says, I'm on my way to dying. So if I'm going to die, who cares about the firstborn right? And Jacob says, swear to me today. And so he swears to him and legally transfers the firstborn right to Jacob. And then it turns out that what he gets is lentils. And he ate and drank and rose and went away, which shows he wasn't on the point of death. And then the text comments, God comments, Esau despised the firstborn right. And he sold it for a stew of little beans. Now, if you've ever cooked lentils, and I like lentils, there's nothing wrong with lentils, that's not what Esau thought he was getting, though. He thought he was getting red stuff. It's unlikely, for all I know, maybe he had a real taste for lentils and knew that's what it was, but as the text reads, we don't find out that it's lentils until the end. It doesn't start off by saying, once Jacob was boiling lentils, and Esau came in from the field. That information that these are beans is reserved to the end of the story. Now, lentils, I guess you know, are little itty-bitty beans, and your average lentil is kind of a brownish color, and when you cook it up, it makes a dark red, red-brown kind of a stew. 
Esau thinks it's red stuff. So the way the story is written is kind of dramatic. What is this stuff? What is Jacob boiling here? What does Esau think it is? Is Esau really tired? Or is he on his way to death? What's going on? Well, that's the drama and the flow of the story. Let's look at some of the details. First of all, the situation. You have to understand that Genesis makes it clear this is a large sheepdom. There were lots of other people cooking in the camp. If Esau was hungry or on the point of death, there was lots of food around. It does not say, once upon a time, Jacob was off by himself in the woods, a day's journey from the camp, and Esau came crawling in, starving to death, and Jacob didn't give him anything to eat. It says Esau came in from the field, which means he came in from the outer area into the inner area. We would say, in terms of Genesis 2, he came from the world into the garden. And as that just transfers itself historically, he came out of the wilderness, or the woods, and into the camp, into the sheikdom, into where all the people were. The grandsons of the 318 fighting men and all the other people that were there. There was lots of stuff there to eat if Esau wanted it. Esau wanted something else. It doesn't say he was starving. It just says he was tired. Esau, see we learned something more about Esau. As far as God is concerned, he's just tired. Tired and kind of hungry. But in Esau's mind, he's dying of starving. This is a guy who can't live with a little pangs of hunger for an extra five minutes. His perception is so self-centered that it seems like he's dying when all he is is tired. Again, a totally present-oriented man. A man who doesn't plan anything. A man who doesn't lay anything up. If he's hungry, goes out and traps a squirrel or shoots a gazelle and eats it. Then when he gets hungry again, he goes and gets another deer. This is not a guy who lives in terms of time. He's just present-oriented. I'm hungry right now, therefore I'm dying right now. He has the mentality of a two-year-old. Then we see this emphasis on red stuff. I think in terms of Genesis, that can only mean one thing. The only thing that they can refer back to, and it doesn't seem to refer forward to anything, is the prohibition on drinking blood. Genesis 9, verse 4 Flesh with its life, which is its blood, you are not to eat. And then there's other stuff about shedding blood and the like in the Noahic Covenant. It's fundamental in the Noahic Covenant that you're not to drink blood. This is reiterated in Leviticus 17 at some depth, at some length. The prohibition on drinking blood is not something that applies only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. It's one of the four Gentile laws in Leviticus, Leviticus 17 and 18. Any man of the house of Israel or of the sojourners who are in your midst. That's in chapter 17. Verse 10. Any man, any man of the house of Israel or of the sojourners that sojourn in their midst that eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from his kinspeople. For the life of the flesh, it is in the blood. Acts chapter 15 takes these four Gentile laws and says that they are applicable to the Gentiles in the church. Keep yourself from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, which means incest, these incest laws in Leviticus 18. Well, back to this, I agree with the commentators, and there are not very many who go into this, but those who do, that 
this is an allusion to blood. And Esau is presented as the guy who breaks every one of the rules that's been given so far in Genesis. He's like Cain, he wants to kill his brother. He's like Lamech, he has multiple wives. He's like the sons of God who intermarry with the daughters of men. He's like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Every archetypal sinner that we've had in Genesis, Esau, is a fulfillment of it. So blood drinking would make sense. Here it is. Give me a gulp of the red stuff, that red stuff, for I'm so weary I'm dying. Notice the language here, verse 32. I'm on my way to dying, and I want red stuff. What is in the blood? Life is in the blood. But you're not allowed to get life from the blood. You can't do it. You can drink all the blood you want. It's not going to give you life. But, of course, that's what savages think, don't they? You kill the enemy and eat his heart or drink his blood, you get his prowess. Cannibalism sometimes exists because people are so hungry they have anything else to eat, but usually it's a ritual, sacrificial idea of getting the strength or prowess of the person you eat. And that, I think, almost certainly is the background here. Esau says, I'm on my way to dying. Let me have some of this red stuff. He's, by implication, all the implications, all the bells that are ringing in this text, move into that direction. He won't settle for anything else. And we can fill this in, Jacob would say, look, there's some food right over there. I'm making this for me. <laughs> he won't settle for anything else. We're not told that, but I think it's fairly clear from context. And only afterwards is it revealed to be merely lentils. We're kept in suspense in this story as to what this stuff is. All of that indicates to me that we are in the area of the prohibition of blood. Therefore, his name is called Edom, which means red, and it's going to associate with blood. Not only the red color of his skin, but now there's an additional layer put on that. The red color of the skin, as I mentioned to you last time, is a positive sign. Remember, David is ruddy. And Solomon in the Song of Solomon, or the man in the Song of Solomon, is ruddy. That's a good sign. And being covered with hair is a good sign, because hair is glory in the Bible. And having your beard pulled out or your hair pulled out is a loss of glory. All of these things Esau starts off with, but now this is overlaid and it's given another meaning. No longer red and healthy, beautiful looking, as it says in Lamentations, their people were ruddy and beautiful but rather an association with this really serious sin. And if you go back to Genesis 9, we won't, because I mentioned it. It says, don't drink the blood, because life is in the blood. The next thing it says is, your life blood will I require of anybody who commits murder. And we have the punishment for murder is the death penalty. Well, what happens to the Edomites and Esau? Esau becomes a murderer. He wants to murder Jacob. Later on, he comes out with 400 men to say hello to Jacob as Jacob comes back into the promised land. And throughout the entire history of the Old Testament, Edom or Esau is a nation of murderers that is at war with God's people, and that carries right on down to Herod and the Herodians in the New Testament. So the blood motif here, drinking blood, being a man of blood, being a murderer, all of it is starting up here. And Edom has that connection. When we read about Edom or Herod of Idumea in the Bible, it means a bloody people. People who will drink blood, people who are murderers. That's essentially they all prove to be. Herod tries to put Jesus to death. The next Herod puts John the Baptist to death. The next Herod puts James to death. They're Edomites. Bloody guys. Now, 
Something that's obscured even in this translation is the legal language here in verse 31 and 33. Now, actually, it's got it in the footnotes. You look down at the bottom of the page. Verse 31 in the first column at the bottom, it says 31 here and now. Others use at once. And then he says, apparently a legal term. I prefer today sell me your firstborn right. Today swear to me. This is a legal transaction. I think, again, we have to understand there are lots of people around. My guess is that some of the people were called upon to bear witness to this event. And Esau swore before Yahweh that he's yielding his firstborn rights to Jacob. I don't know how else it could be known. How else could it be legal if it's just between these two guys and nobody else is there on the occasion? A legal transaction always involves witnesses. So I think we have to assume there are witnesses there. People might have thought it was absolutely insane. People might even have tried to prevail on it. And you try to imagine how this would work out in terms of the dramatic situation. And how would you cast it in a movie? <laughs> the story of Jacob that was on TNT a few years ago, it was okay. The Joseph one that they did was excellent. The Jacob one was okay. He was making this porridge, lentils, and it was for a sick child who was in the camp. And Esau comes in and he says, uh, give me some of that stuff. I don't care about my birthright. It was presented accurately in the sense that Esau didn't come crawling in on the point of starvation. And Jacob says, look, I'm cooking this for the sick child in here. I don't care about the sick child. Just give me some of that red stuff in there. So Jacob says, if that's your attitude, you're not worthy to carry the covenant why don't you just sell me the birthright? Okay, you can have the birthright. Just give me some of that red stuff. That's the way they did it in the TV movie, which is okay. But my guess is you could do it another way, and that is to actually have some of the people, older men, older servants in the camp, called upon to bear witness to this because it's a legal transaction. And it's one that's binding. And it's one that Isaac determines to break when he says, I'm going to bless Esau and give the covenant to him. And it's Rebecca who says, I'm going to honor this. And there would have been witnesses in the camp who could have been called upon to say, oh yeah, I was there. Yeah, it was weird. Esau gave up all of his firstborn privileges for a bunch of lentils. We thought it was really weird. I'm sure they went off and told. So my guess is there were other people there since it's a legal thing. This is legal language. It's a contract. It's binding. D, food. Once again, we mentioned the food theme. Like Adam, Edom sells his birthright for forbidden food. Adam, Edom. Remember, we looked at that connection last time. Adam, Edom. The word ruddy, Edom. See, there's more sounds in there too, if I still got those notes. Yes. Ruddy is Adom. Adam is Adam. Edom is Edom. They're all roughly the same sound and clearly the same associations. And... Here it is. Adam sold his birthright for forbidden food. He wanted food he wasn't supposed to have. And Esau does the same thing. Edom, Edom, a form of Adam, connects to the bad side of Adam, while son of Adam, or son of man, connects to the redeemed Adam, persevering in God's original plan. Now, I mention that because this grows later on in the Bible. We'll find in the later on parts of the Bible as we go, we have the expression son of Adam. Son of Man, as it will be translated, and Jesus says, Son of Man. You really ought to think of it as Son of Adam and set it juxtaposed to Edom. Edom is one son of Adam, 
Adam becomes Edom, the bloody man. Or Adam has a son through the woman, the seed of the woman, the blossoming of the woman. That's the son of Adam, which is the opposite. So you've got two streams out from Eve, Cain and Abel, trees and thorns. Adam, son of Adam, and Edom. That's the relationship, and it's good to have that in mind. When you read Ezekiel and it says, Son of man, do this, son of man, do that. In the Hebrew it says, Son of Adam, Adam. In that prophetic context, you've got prophecies against Edom. Edom and Adam. Those are the contrasts. So, that's why I mentioned that there under D2 and something to bear in mind. Conclusions. The four staccato verbs in verse 34 show that Esau was not at all near death. Eight, drank, rose, went off. It's that short in Hebrew. I neglected to bring a Hebrew text in. I could read it to you, but it's just real short, quick, monosyllabic or disyllabic words. And that's part of the rhythm of the text, part of the music of the text. He ate, drank, got up, went off. Junior starvation, you can't do that. So there goes all the attempts to make this out to be some horrible thing that Jacob did to Esau. Esau is the one condemned by the word, not Jacob. Jacob is seen as righteous. He saves the covenant from a wicked man who would have destroyed the covenant. Jacob clearly loves the covenant, regardless of the commentators. And it's neither selfish nor sinful to want to preserve the covenant from those who despise it. Well, there's nothing wrong with Jacob in this passage. There's no sin here. The Bible never hints that there is. Only it says that Jacob despises it. We ought not to make this complicated. I remember Gary North years ago using this as an example of hard bargaining. The Bible allows hard bargaining. You know, if a guy is starving to death, it's not necessarily wrong for you to say, deed me over your house and all of your lands uh, for this meal. Because that's just how God set it up. And if you're a Christian, it's better for you to have his property than for him to have it. And if he's been put in a situation where he's starving to death and you can drive a hard bargain. It's not necessarily wrong to drive a real hard bargain. Well, I'm not sure what I think about that at all. <laughs> I'm not sure Gary would say the same thing now as he said 20 years ago, which is where that came from. That's not what's going on here. This is not about driving a hard bargain. This is about a man who just, Esau, doesn't care about the firstborn right. And we know why. We could say it's because he's unregenerate. But something in his psychology makes him not care about it. And I've already mentioned it. Did I make it clear enough to where you can tell me what it is? When is he going to inherit this firstborn right? When the father dies, is that near at hand? No, that's way off in the future. This is a man who thinks only of the present. He's a hunter. He's not a guy who goes out hunting on a weekend, you know, two, three times a year for fun. This is a guy who lives moment by moment. Who never plans anything. And he's hungry and he says, I'm starving. And he hadn't anything to eat in six hours and now he's about to die. Totally present oriented. And so to him, this is in the future. It's meaningless to him. Whereas, what the Bible is doing in terms of maturity, maturity in the Bible, actually in life, especially in the Bible, is the acquisition of a long time sense. Maturity is the acquisition of a long time since. Children don't have it. And children never get it unless they're disciplined to it. 
you have to acquire the ability to say no to yourself in terms of something that's future. And all of us somewhat learn this when you're a child. It seems as if Christmas never comes. You get to be my age and it comes way too soon every year. You're looking at your pocketbook and saying, not again. Uh, <laughs> because what happens is as you get older, you start to pick up a rhythm of time. Long time. You begin to feel a week. And then you begin to feel a month. You begin to feel a year. Imagine if you lived a thousand years, you begin to feel the rhythm of larger spans of time. We die long before we get there. But the Bible tells us that there's seven-year patterns of time. That's just too big for us to feel. We can analyze it. And say, if you start a new work, you'll have a crisis in the third year. Whatever it is, you'll have one. And you have to work through that third-year crisis to the fourth year. You come be a pastor of a new church, you will have something happen in the third year. People will say, we love the old pastor, we don't like you. Whatever it is, you will have a problem in the third year. You will always have a problem in the third year when you start a project. That's a biblical pattern. But it's hard to feel that, what happens with a third year or three and a half year crisis and then coming to a seventh year. You always pick that up and another third year crisis or they're patterns. The Bible gives them to us. Three, seven, forty-nine. These patterns are here, but they're too big for us to feel. But if we live a long time, we get to where we feel the rhythm of those too. You begin to have a sense. Ah, something's going to happen here. As you begin to have, as you get older, with years, months, days, if you mature. Otherwise, it's just the immediacy. Your whole life. And with people like that, there comes a point at which all you can do because of their criminality is just put them to death and turn them over to God because they don't ever learn. Children learn it when their parents spank them for doing what's wrong. Now, children learn this stuff when they're spanked, when they're told to wait, and when they have to wait for things that they're not old enough for yet. Kids that aren't spanked grow up without any time sense. Proverbs, I think, makes that real plain. And it's not very hopeful to consider the United States of America. The people who went through the Depression in World War II and were the parents of the baby boomer generation raised a really rotten group of kids, which was my generation. I guess because they went through the trauma of the Depression and of World War II, they decided to not discipline their kids. And as a group, those kids became the 60s generation, and they don't discipline their kids either. So it's multiplying down to where we have a very present-oriented society now. And that's unfortunate and dangerous, a whole society of Esau's. Jacob is developing a time sense. He's going to have to develop more and more. When this is a guy who's going to have to work seven whole years for a wife. That's time sense. Now, he's 77 when he does it, so he's acquired more of a time sense than you and I probably ever will. Because by the time I'm 77, I won't live that long. But by the time some of you are 77, you'll be in your dotage and you, you, know, you won't be thinking all that clear, probably. But when Jacob was 77, he had the mind of a 30-year-old. So whatever wisdom he had acquired over the years, he hadn't gone into any type of senility. He still had it. Still had physical strength, mental strength, everything else. He had enough of a time sense. Abraham, God worked enough of a time sense into Abraham to where he could say, 400 years from now you'll inherit. And Abraham said, yeah, I can see it. And then he said, a thousand years from now, this city that Melchizedek has, that will be a city. 
And Abraham looked for a city and he saw it a thousand years away. And actually, 1,500 years away, down to Jesus. Almost 2,000 years away. Abraham, as a father, becomes like God, a great father, and he develops a time sense. And that way he can prophesy and he can initiate a future because he understands time. Now that's what God does. God initiates the whole creation because God understands time because God is supreme over time. But as we mature in God-likeness, and remember old men in the Bible are called gods or Elohim if they're wise. As we mature in God-likeness, we mature in the ability to understand time and to initiate futures. What you see in the patriarchs, Abraham and then the others as well, particularly Abraham, is developing long time sense sensitivity to how things are in time and the ability to initiate a new history. We're supposed to have the faith of Abraham and be like Abraham, so we should all be like that, all be founders. Well, I go through that to say Jacob is on the track to developing that way. Jacob already sees at a fairly young age here that the firstborn right is really important, and it may be a century before Isaac dies, and in fact it is going to be over a century before Isaac dies. Although long before he dies, he's going to lay hands on him. Isaac thinks he's going to die long before he dies. Isaac lives about 50 years after he passes the blessing on to Jacob. Uh-huh. Well, the question is, did these boys really have the right to negotiate with this firstborn rider? Didn't it actually lie with Isaac to make the determination. You know, I've never thought about that. I think the text, by not mentioning it, I think wants us to understand that at some level they did. Whatever happened here, Isaac would have had to do something in order to invalidate it, beyond just ignoring it, especially since God himself had prophesied and said this was going to happen anyway. But what you're saying is that since Isaac had not yet conferred the blessing on Esau, did Esau have the right to give it away? Well, I guess you'd have to say he had the right to give away his betrothal to it. It's like the difference between a betrothal and a marriage, I'd say, if I was going to unpack it. He's betrothed to this right. He's not yet married to it. Yeah. Whatever it is, and under the law, it winds up being a double portion. We haven't come to Moses yet, and so exactly what this is, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago. It says that Abraham gave everything he had to Isaac, and then it says he gave all kinds of gifts to his other sons. Well, <laughs> everything he had is obviously a package of some sort. That's given to Isaac, and that's the firstborn right. But all kinds of other stuff can be given to the sons. So whatever this is, it's probably not a double portion as opposed to a single portion, but it's some package. I'm sure it means the rule of the sheikdom, inheriting basically the sheikdom. And I would say that they have the right to do this negotiation. It isn't regarded as invalid. So I guess in my mind I would think of it as he's betrothed to it but not yet married to it. And if he wants to break off the betrothal before the marriage takes place, give his expected wife to somebody else, he could in the same way he can transfer this expectation. Uh -huh. Yeah, you don't have this situation recur. You don't have the sons negotiating among themselves. You have the father making a determination. 
that's part of what makes this story exceptional is that Isaac is making all the wrong choices. So his son, his righteous son, and his righteous wife have to make the choices for him. Yeah, but what she's saying is that Ishmael and Isaac didn't negotiate between themselves to make a decision. Abraham just made a command decision. Well, God told him, but yeah. The sons didn't have anything to say about it. Yeah, Jacob blesses the two sons of Joseph. Jacob decides which of his sons are going to do what. It's not like they negotiate. It's not like Reuben said to Joseph, well, you go ahead and be the firstborn. <laughs> Wasn't anything like that happen. So you're right. This stands out as a highly exceptional, and I hadn't made that point. It's a good point. In terms of the way Genesis is set up, this does stand out as very exceptional. And what makes it exceptional is the sin of Isaac. If the patriarch is going to be in sin and is going to destroy the kingdom, then what do the underlings do? What do you do if Pharaoh tells you to murder all the babies? You deceive Pharaoh. What do you do if Isaac's going to take the covenant and trash it? You do whatever you can to preserve it. The replacement of the firstborn is here. In fact, it's at every point in Genesis. There's not one single instance of a firstborn inheriting in Genesis. But it's the sons of Noah, and Jacob is the oldest son of Noah, but Shem is the one who carries the line. Children of Shem, Arpaxad is not the oldest, but he's the one that the covenant line comes through, and so forth. That's really all I wanted to say on that passage, plus Joyce's insight that this stands out. Let me just very quickly introduce the next section, which is chapter 26. Almost to the end, chapter break here is very bad. Chapter 26 down to verse 33 is one story. And the next story starts in verses 34 and 35. So that should really go with chapter 27, and we will when we get to it. What happens in this next story? Well, it says there's a famine. Food comes up again. Jacob loved Esau because of the food he brought him. Esau wants this red stuff. That's the next story that we read. And now we read about a famine. This is all about food here. It's about food and it's about water. There's a famine. Isaac goes down to Gerar to Avimelech. My father is the king, Avimelech, king of the Philistines. And God appears to him in a theophany and tells him to go on down there. He makes promises to him. While he's there, there's an implied threat against his wife. And then his wife is protected. And then Isaac sows in the land and he becomes very prosperous. And the Philistines fight with him about it. And they contend with him over all the wells he digs. He digs about five or six wells. Water is all over this passage. Garden of Eden is all over this passage. One well after another, one water after another is coming out. And then he goes to Beersheba, seven wells. And then God appears to him again. After he's had his quarrels, he's had peace, God appears to him again. And then Abimelech and Phichol, the commander of his army, come and they make a covenant with him. Now, we have a departure and a theophany. That's an appearance of God as we leave. And then we have struggle with Gentiles. And we have blessing and prosperity. And we have a departure. And then God appears to him. And we have a covenant with the Gentiles. All in one chapter. Now, does this story look any way familiar? 
It is familiar because it happens about ten times in the Bible. But in terms of the Jacob narrative, we'll talk about this more next week. I just want you to think about it. Put it out here. What does Jacob do? Jacob is sent out to get a wife. As he leaves the promised land, what happens? The alphany God appears to him as angels going up and down. Then what happens? There's a struggle with Jacob's brothers. And he gets wives and kids and gets a lot of wealth. And he decides he's going to leave. God appears to him and says, go on back home. And then Laban comes out after him and makes a covenant with him. So this little story here about Isaac is recapitulated in large form in the story of Jacob. It's already happened with Abraham. And it happens a bunch of other times. It's going to happen with Joseph. And if you look at this, it really happens with the most important person who ever lived. <laughs> because he left heaven, he was baptized, he had a struggle. Right now he's getting all kinds of children in prosperity. And other things are happening. And then he's going to return back to his father. I didn't mention this, but eventually there's a return back to the father. That's also happening. All of these patriarchal things are types that reveal what Jesus is going to do. And uh, so we're, that brings us to big theme. And we can lay out then, what do you think we would want to do here? We'll want to look at the way this pattern happens with Abraham. When Abraham is in Gerar, it's when his son is born. And we look at it with Isaac. There's nothing about children being born here, but there are a lot of wells being dug, water. Then we look at it with Jacob. Jacob doesn't dig any wells, but he has a whole bunch of sons and he gets a bunch of flocks. We look at it with Joseph. Joseph gets in here. He struggles. He goes into prison. Then he comes out. He gets married and has some sons and winds up ruling everything. And then they depart in the exodus. So the contrast, as well as the pattern, have things to show us too. What's important about each passage and what God is revealing as we go along and in how it all culminates in Jesus. What do you think digging all those wells and providing all those water would tie to in terms of the ultimate meaning? Yeah, Pentecost. That would be close to it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.